Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. You know this better than anyone. The, the presidential races, more so than Senate races, even more so than House races, more so than governor's races, like you have to go out and actually show that you can appeal to people, right? Because these early states are not California. They're not Texas. They're not Ohio, right? They're, they're not states where you can just run a bunch of TV ads and introduce yourself to people. You have to like go and meet people. You can run for Senate in some ways easier in terms of like lacking a winning personality than you can run for president. The presidential race, like it or not, is very personality-driven. It is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast one of my Former colleagues from CNN, you may know him from his show, The Point. He has a book coming out in April, Power Players, about sports and the presidency. He's now on Substack. My friend Chris Saliza. Welcome, Chris. Hello, sir. Thanks for having me. It's great to see you. I'm trying to remember the last times we hung out in person. I do vividly remember a basketball game in New Hampshire. I think that was the time. Yes. And uh, I think it was officially a draw, though I think you might have gotten the better of me. Is that what, what happened? No, no. You're, you're amending history. You beat me. Oh, wow. That's, that's kind. I, I think if, if I did beat you, I think you were taking it easy on the presidential candidate. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I never take it easy. I only have one speed. <laughs> well, then I feel all the better about it then. So... Uh, you're one of the most plugged-in political reporters uh, in in the country. Uh, you and I hung out in the early states. I know right now New Hampshire is having a bit of a meltdown because uh, the, the Democrats might have deposed them. I made a couple of big predictions. We're going to open up with 2024, which is what most people think about, unfortunately, when they think about politics. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That is true. You're right. Yes. So I made a couple of predictions um, to open up the year in 2023. Um, so number one, I said that Joe Biden runs for re-election. Uh, and uh, that if he... Well, first, let's start there. Uh, are you hearing anything different? No. Um, six months ago, I think it was more of an open question. Like, there were definitely people you could find who knew Biden who said, you know, he hasn't made his mind up. 
uh, sort of depends how these next few months go. It depends how like every how he how he feels, how Jill his wife feels. Um, it, it seems to me that doubt has disappeared uh, in those six months. I think whether it's getting done the things he got done, whether it's the prospect of Trump again, you know, obviously Trump is the only announced candidate for president at the moment. Uh, and I would say the front runner for the Republican nomination. Uh, I, I don't know what it is. I, I would say barring some sort of health crisis, right? Like he goes and has a physical before he announces and they find something, God forbid. I can't imagine him not running uh, at this point, though, you know, he'll be 82 when he is, in, if if and when he is inaugurated for another term and 86 by the time he finishes that term. So obviously those would break all records for the oldest person ever to, to, to be in office. And I do think his age will be an issue uh, in the campaign. How big of one? I mean, Trump is not uh, the youngest. You know, Trump is 76, 77. Uh, so I don't know how big an issue it is if Trump is the nominee. You know, it's hard to make an argument about generational change when you're, you know, two years younger than the, the president. But uh, I do think Biden runs. I do think that one is right. I, again, I think we always have to caveat it with, you know, until he says I'm running for president, we don't know. But I, I, everything points in that direction. Yeah. One thing that points in that direction is that no one else is running. <laughs> or, exactly. Or at, least, at least there's like a avoid, shall we say, and not no one else. I mean, um, I, I can think of at least one person I think is going to throw their hat in the ring on the Democratic side, but that person's not part of the Democratic establishment. When I was in South Carolina last week, uh, I asked, and they said that no one in uh, the Democratic circles has been organization building or reaching out or testing the waters. And I think no one will for fear that you get crossways with the current president of the United States and that hurts you down the line. If if Biden had internally to sort of the, the establishment of the Democratic Party said, I'm undecided or I'm leaning against it, I think you would see some people making trips to Iowa, making trips to New Hampshire, making trips to South Carolina. Uh, they would cover it and say, well, I'm just, you know, visiting this state. It's always been important to me. Right. But like, there's a reason that they go to those three states and not the other 47 states. Um, you haven't seen that again, which I think is even more evidence to your point that they've been told internally, he's very likely to do this again. And so it's not in their political best interest to get on his bad side by like, going to do an event in South Carolina while he's still ostensibly making up his mind. By the way, the people in South Carolina I spoke to were hoping that he doesn't run because they want a competitive race because that that would mean yep. a ton of attention and resources uh, to them. And then if Joe does run, it's uh, uh, essentially a James Clyburn coronation uh, re repeat. I think that the little dirty little secret of every early voting state is they want <laughs> they want as much money, time, and attention to be spent in that state as possible. I mean, that's th – now, I do think, um, you know, on the Republican side, Nikki Haley is going to run, former South Carolina governor. Uh, so, you know, and obviously Trump's in the race, and I think DeSantis will be in the race. So so I think you're going to have a competitive – at least a quasi-competitive race on one side, but I think it's unlikely, uh, barring – 
a big surprise from Biden. I think it's very unlikely you see a terribly competitive race in any of these early states. Like you said, there will definitely be a candidate or two who run sort of for their own, either their own interests or to, to um, push, try to push an issue into the, into the limelight. But those people don't have any reasonable expectation of winning, right? They're, they're, it's not it's not as though it's it's a, a campaign that's based on this is going to end in victory. It's a campaign based on I want to get this issue forward or I want to do something with my profile. Those kind of candidates may well run, but I don't see any serious challenge to Biden emerging in South Carolina or anywhere else. Well, when you talk about the, 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 the seriousness of the challenge, I mean, a lot of it, and I said this on... CNN a couple months ago. Uh, I don't think the DNC is going to play fair. Like I, I think the DNC's interest in having their sitting president Joe Biden, who will be eighty-one uh, when this is going on, uh, standing there debating uh, multiple times, multiple candidates. Uh, they're they're going to totally short circuit that process. Uh, if uh, let's say they set a debate threshold of hey, you need to be polling at fifteen percent, and then. You had a couple upstarts pulling at fifteen percent. I think they would just raise it to twenty five percent. They would just they would just yes. screw with the dials and, and like make it into as much of a non uh, race as possible. Tune their interest to make it a non race for two reasons: one, because they don't want to spend any money that they don't have to spend. They don't want Biden to spend any money that they don't have that he that he doesn't have to spend not on the general election. But two, you mentioned the debate thing, and I think it's worth revisiting. You know. Joe Biden, whether you think he's been a good president or a bad president, is not a terribly good candidate for president. You know, he lost twice, uh, 88 and 2008. He won a race that was, you know, I, I think, I'm trying not to exaggerate recency bias here, but but one of the weirdest races that we've ever seen. What are you right? getting at, Chris? A, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I mean, you know, not, not just because you were in it, not just because you were in it. No, it was a race that sort of, you know, uh, it was going against Biden until South Carolina, then he won South Carolina, and then the race effectively sort of ended because of COVID. Yeah. I mean, there was no, you know, after that one Super Tuesday that Biden did pretty well, but Bernie Sanders was still a relevant, serious candidate, and had it not been for COVID, would have continued to run. You know, the race kind of ended that early in early March 2020, and so... It's not even as though Biden, I mean, look, you could always argue Hillary versus Barack Obama. Look, it went all the way to the end. They went all the way to June 6th of of that year um, running against one another. So, you know, Obama won that race. Uh, You know, for Biden, I don't know how well he wears as a candidate. Uh, I think he's not a great debater. Um, I don't think any of those things would preclude him from being the nominee. Again, with the names that I hear mentioned as possible candidates, even if they did get on a debate stage with Joe Biden, I still think Joe Biden would wind up winning. I don't know if he would be as convincing on a debate stage as some people would like him to be, which is why it's in the sort of establishment Democrats' interest to keep this race as non-competitive as possible. When you talk about names of folks who might run on the Democratic side. Uh, I've heard Marianne Williamson. I've heard yep. Nina Turner. Um, have you heard any different? No. The, Marianne Williamson is the one sort of, you know, who who we know has done this in the past. Um, you know, she had moments during the last race. Uh, I, I think people 
interested in her as kind of an oddity more than as someone who was a serious candidate. I could see her running. I could see Nina Turner running sort of as a lefty alternative to Biden. Again, those are people, I think, who would get single digits, given, given the way everything is currently structured now, with the DNC, with the rules um, and bylaws committee, with everything being set up, with South Carolina apparently going first, obviously would be Joe Biden's strongest state among the early states. It's the only one he won among the early states. Um, everything seems to me to be pointing to a relatively easy victory for him. I, I do not think this is Carter Kennedy in 1980. You know, I, I don't see a, a a senator or a sitting member of the cabinet or anything like that running. I, I, I just, again, I think those people who, it's like you said, those people who run will do so for, they have their own reasons. They have their own agendas that they're trying to put forward. But I don't think winning is at the top of those agendas because I think it's just very unlikely. It's very hard to beat an incumbent president anyway, even if you are, say, Ted Kennedy, as we saw in 1980. Uh, so I think that it's it's very unlikely anyone other than Biden winds up as a nominee, even if we get a random member of Congress who runs, you know, which I think, again, is unlikely. But Are you hearing that? You know, Are you hearing that? No. I am not. Uh, but but I could see if you're a, a lefty, you know, a kind of liberal member of Congress and you want to sort of raise your profile, I could see it. But like the likes of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or someone like that, she's just not – there's no reason for her to run. She already has a national platform. Uh, I think it's unlikely she would beat Joe Biden in a, in a in a Democratic primary just because of all the advantages that we just talked about. You know, so anyone who I think could win wouldn't run. And look at this and say, look, worst case scenario for them, politically speaking, Joe Biden it wins and is president until 2028. And then it's open. And many of these people are young and can wait. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Why let big tech companies see everything you're doing online when you can just use ExpressVPN and then be footloose and fancy free. Plus, you get access to exclusive content by beaming in to another market. What do I mean? Let's say you have Netflix and you missed the show Snowpiercer. By the way, I loved that movie. And you want to watch the TV series, not available in the US on Netflix, but if you beam into the UK or someplace else, then there's Snowpiercer on your Netflix. See how it works? This is a way you can get more from what you're already spending on streamers, plus totally anonymous online, plus you can do it by pushing one button anywhere you are. It's why I love ExpressVPN. It's like a set it and forget it. So be smart. Stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com yang. Don't forget to use my link at expressvpn.com yang to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Uh, first, let me say uh, I'm I'm friends with Marianne Williamson, and I like and admire her a great deal. I think she's a much more serious, thoughtful figure uh, than most uh, gave her credit for, and, and I've written as much. Um, and she endorsed me in the uh, or uh, we campaigned together in various ways, um, and I spent a lot of time with her. Like I, I'm a, a 
big fan of hers. What you said about Joe being a like a bad campaigner or like maybe mm-hmm. a, a not great candidate. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I had a ringside seat to that, obviously. And one of the things I say to folks is that uh, the more people saw of Joe, the less well he did. <laughs> I mean, that's like just a it's a tough observation. But uh, the the folks in Iowa and New Hampshire, I spoke before or after mm-hmm. Joe Biden a dozen times. And he's he you know, at the time he was, uh, you know, if he's 80 now, I guess he'd be like, you know, he was 77 at the time or something along those lines, 76. Uh, and he he wasn't that compelling uh, an in-person presence or speaker over the 2020 campaign. Again, like, I, I don't think the DNC wants anything to do with him having to campaign in these states um, or have debates with, uh, with with these figures. And, and so I, I think you wind up with something along the lines of what you're describing. Um, though I do think if you had a very credible alternative to Joe of any ideological bent, I, I think that they would actually get some real oxygen in part yep. because the folks in the early states, uh, one to your, to, to what we said before, it's like, they just kind of want some action. They want some energy. Like if totally. it's a dud, then, then it's like a, you know, it's a dud for them. Um, but the other thing is that there, there's a significant proportion of Democrats who uh, the polling shows are like really uncomfortable with, um, inaugurating an 82 year old president. And, yep. and that per- that percentage is a bit higher among independents and whatnot. I, I will say too that like I share that discomfort just in the sense that you know common sense like if you had a really really stressful job um, would you bring in the you know the the uh, octogenarian uh, and if you do that then are you in essence voting for his running mate um, who I expect to be Kamala Harris uh, because I don't see any way he can make that change. Yes, a uh, couple things. One, Kamala Harris will be the vice presidential nominee. He's not going to. Th- I think one of my favorite slash most ridiculous storylines, and it happens every four years with an incumbent president, is the he or she is going to trade out. What's a he? I guess because we never had a female president. He is going to trade out uh, the the nominee for vice president. That that this is the time that it's going to happen. And every four years, there are stories about it. It's going to be, they're going to move in someone more popular. They're, they're not getting along. And every four years it winds up, they nominate. I mean, yes, uh, vice presidential nominees were swapped out in the 19th century. In the 20th and 21st century, it just doesn't happen. And so I think there will come a time, because there always comes a time every four years, where there will be a story or stories written about, like, tensions are high between Biden and Kamala Harris. And it will will they... Will they potentially, she's not popular enough and will Biden swap her out? But no, he's not going to do that. She's going to be the nominee. I do think, uh, you, you mentioned polling. Uh, you know, there's a poll out in New Hampshire last week that showed that, you know, a majority of Democrats don't want Biden to run again. Now, some of that is because he has come out and said, I don't think New Hampshire should have the first in the nation. <laughs> yeah, they did love that. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, they're not, I mean, these are people who have built, uh, a cottage industry around having the first nation primary. You've been in New Hampshire many times, as have I. It is a massive boon to the state's economy that they have this many uh, presidential candidates, reporters, entourages. You know, it, it's just it's it's advertising, a huge economic advertising, like the zone. Yeah, right. It's it's a huge 
economic boon for the state. So part of it is that. But I do think if you go and look at polling outside of New Hampshire, there's lots and lots of people, including lots and lots of young Democrats who don't want Joe Biden to run again. Now, those polls rarely ask why, right? They just say, do you, do you think Joe Biden should be the nominee or do you want Joe Biden to be the nominee? But, you know, my strong sense is that there is some trepidation about nominating someone of his age uh, to another four-year term. I mean, we people went crazy when Ronald Reagan was Ronald Reagan was a de- going to be a decade younger. <laughs> I, I know he's like a spring chicken compared to Joe. Joe Biden, right? And so, you know, I, I I think you're right. I mean, I think there I think there is a again if there wasn't if Biden didn't have control of sort of the reins of the nominating process, which he does. In which, you know, incumbent presidents generally do. It's not like he's unique in this. But if he didn't have the full reins of the nominating process, is there a lane where you could run as a sort of generational change that, you know, look, Biden did a lot of great things, but, you know, the future of the Democratic Party can't be an 82-year-old man who will be, you know, in his mid to late 80s by excuse me, by the time he runs for, by the time he's finished in office, like that's, that's a case that there is some polling data, at least that suggests there's interest there, again, particularly among younger voters, uh, younger Democratic voters. So it's one of those things that I think there's a constituency for it. I'm just not sure there's a candidacy or a candidate for it. Yeah, in in part because of what you said before, which is, look, if you are an up and comer, you're not going to ruin your relationship with the current president yeah. and most everyone of importance in the DNC by thrusting yourself into this race, which is one reason why I think that Joe's going to declare for reelection. And then everyone is going to say, Joe, Joe, he's our guy uh, and get behind. And when I say everyone, I mean, everyone in the democratic establishment is going to say, mm-hmm. uh, Joe, Joe, he's our guy. Uh, and, and I think that the Democrats end up having some version of buyer's remorse when the clock takes forward to 2024 and Joe is, uh, running and, you know, maybe there, there are some economic problems. Maybe he's facing a younger, more dynamic candidate than Trump. Like, but this, this is what I, I think is going to happen. I, I personally see this as a, deeply unhealthy process <laughs> where, uh, you know, and the common sense is like, I just don't think this is great. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy in that I knew if you're going to spend eight hours doing something, you should probably invest in doing it right. That's why I love Helix Sleep, which will send a mattress to your door that's made just for you. You take the Helix Sleep quiz and you get matched with a mattress based upon whether you want it to be soft, medium, firm, how you sleep, other variables, and then voila, it gets sent to your door and you can try it for up to 100 nights and send it back. They have a 10 plus year warranty because they believe in their product so much. I do too, my kids do too. They actually seek out this mattress even though it was designed not for them. (laughs) That's how good this product is. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple chiropractors and doctors because they think it'll make you healthier. 
Don't take my word for it. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash yang and use code helixpartner20. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. On the other side, you mentioned uh, Trump obviously running, and then Nikki Haley's going to run. We think DeSantis is going to run. Um, I think Larry Hogan runs. I think Mike Pompeo runs. Uh, I think I personally think Tulsi Gabbard may run um, in, hmm. in the re- Republican lane. Um, are, are you hearing about any other candidates? Oh, Chris Christie. How uh, did I miss Chris Christie? Yep. Oh, and Mike Pence. Oh, that gets us to eight. I was going to say Mike Pence for sure. I, I think I think that's the the bulk of the serious people, uh, Tom Cotton, the Senator from Arkansas took himself out. You know, Josh Hawley from Missouri gets mentioned the Senator from Missouri. I I don't think he does it for the exact same reason that we were just talking about why ambitious Democrats don't run against Biden. I think Hawley looks at it and says, you know, I have a five, maybe he says 10% chance of winning, but like a 5% chance of winning. Is it worth, going in and sort of running in that regard with those chances or is it worth waiting and just seeing kind of what pans out and you know he's 40 so it's like he he can wait around uh same thing with marco rubio i think he would like to run for president again i don't know if he he will this time i could see ted cruz running again um you know he was uh the runner-up in 2016 to trump I'm amazed that the race came down to him and Trump. I mean, I think it just speaks to sort of the the wackiness of the Republican Party that you had Donald Trump and and Ted Cruz as the the final two. I would not have predicted that. Not not just actually the wackiness that that undersells it. The lack of power of the establishment to choose candidates in an open primary race, because Donald Trump ran expressly as the anti-establishment candidate. Ted Cruz was someone who the establishment hated, uh, you know, for shutting down the government over Obamacare, for sort of what they viewed as his grandstanding, political grandstanding. The fact that he eventually became the establishment candidate was, I mean, spoke to No one to likes that guy. That he, everyone, like everyone's down, you know, I mean, the fact that such a deeply, personally unpopular figure <laughs> ended up becoming he, like And that. he was the second, he, he finished second. Yeah, he was a runner up, I remember. So, um, I could see, I I could see him running again. I think, you know, until proven otherwise, I think the polling should be trusted broadly, which is the race looks like a race between Trump and DeSantis with everybody else kind of trying to benefit from what is expected to be those two going after one another. And and I do think, look, Trump, I just wrote about this. Tr- Trump doesn't really have like a policy agenda to talk about. Um, he doesn't, he doesn't have a real vision. I mean, to the extent he has a vision, it's a very dark vision, but, but he doesn't really have a vision for sort of like America's next steps. The way that he runs these campaigns is he just kind of savages whoever's in front of him, right? Like first it was, uh, first it was Jeb Bush. Then it was, uh, Marco Rubio. Then it was Ted Cruz. Then it was Hillary Clinton. Like that's what he does. So, you know, I think he's sort of waiting around for DeSantis to get into the race. And I think it's why you see sort of a lack of energy around 
like Trump's campaign so far. He's been in the race inexplicably. He got in November 16th, 2022. I have no idea why he did that other than potentially to make it harder to indict him uh, because it's, you know, he's an active presidential candidate. It, it made no sense from a political perspective. He's the front runner. I, he didn't I, I, to, I thought uh, it was to, to um, curtail or, you know, uh, short circuit legal proceedings and maybe yeah. just scare off candidates, um, which I, which his launch has been uh, very poor and he seemed for the most part uh, disinterested and one note himself kind of low energy, you know, uh, strangely enough. <laughs> um, uh, and, and yet um, it still seems to have worked on the level that you haven't seen other Republican candidates declare. There was a recent story saying that no one wants to be first because they're going to get uh, gored yep. by tr Trump. And then they're yep. talking maybe have, have a bunch of us declare at the same time. So it's harder for him to do it to <laughs> all of us. Which, which by the way, I, I, I found to be farcically ridiculous because um, if you are a non-DeSantis candidate, I think you need the time um, totally. to, to, to get out there and make a case before the oxygen leaves the room. I totally agree. I think if I was Nikki Haley or Mike Pompeo or even Mike Pence, I would get in sooner rather than later Agreed. for that exact reason. Yeah. Once DeSantis gets in, which I think will probably be over the summer, once DeSantis gets in, the race becomes DeSantis versus Trump, right? It's these all these two warring titans and two visions of the Republican Party or what, you know, generational clash, whatever. It, it becomes a race that's told through the two of them. I think you have to get out and make it, even if you're at, even if Trump is at 50 and DeSantis is at 30 and you get yourself to 15, 10, like you, you distinguish yourself in some way. You, you're, you're not at one or 2%, you get to 10 or 11 or 12%. Then at least the race is written about as Trump and DeSantis. And let's just say Nikki Haley sort of as the alternative to that. And then if they start fighting with each other, as you know, certainly Trump will do, and I would assume DeSantis will respond in kind, but as they start attacking one another, then you're a credible alternative for people who are sick of that. I'll also add, if you're not Trump or DeSantis, and you're at, you know, I think the, the Nikki Haley is at like five or 6%, Pence is at 8%, no one is above that other than the two of them. Like, you need that time to your point, Andrew, you need that time to like build support. Yeah. You need that time to you need that time yourself. to raise raise money to uh to right to, to to introduce yourself to these early states like to build a national uh infrastructure that can support like that if you get some momentum that can support that momentum. These things I think people always say like I can't believe the presidential race is starting already, which I understand and I think it's a natural reaction. At the same time the logistics of running a national campaign are significant from a financial perspective, from just a building the, the, the totally. uh, campaigns in the states. And it takes a bunch of time. It also takes a long time to get known. Yeah. You know, you're you're running for months and months and months. And you think like, of course, people know that I'm running. But then you find out they don't no. you know you need to have it, it takes a lot of time for people to recognize a name and say, oh, let me go to an event with them. I, I mean, I'm sure you had this experience. Oh, yeah. I declared in February of 2018 uh, in the New York Times, and uh, in, no one cared about the 2024 race that early on. Um, but 
it was the right move because I was finding early adopters and doing podcasts and grinding out events and also honing my message and figuring it out. Uh, like my team was getting their act together because my team was not exactly comprised of veteran political operatives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and if there was um, an upstart Republican candidate right now, I think that they would get major press coverage and hits just because uh, you have Trump and then you have the alternative to Trump, who, let's say, in your like uh, hypotheticals, Nikki Haley. I think, well, Nikki Haley is a big enough deal where she gets um, all of the uh, Sunday morning interviews anyway. But I, I think if you were one of the more marginal candidates, like you probably also would get uh, major press coverage because like, well, you know, second presidential candidate of uh, the Republican Party's here. Absolutely. And, and there's a little, I mean, I do think there is, and, and this doesn't mean he won't be the nominee, but I do think there is some Trump fatigue, both in the Republican Party and in the country more broadly. Like, I think in the Republican Party, there are number of people who are ready to have someone other than Donald Trump in front of them at all times. And, you know, Trump's shtick, and it is a shtick, I mean, you know, he's only kind of gone deeper into it over the over the last two years, right? Like the election is stolen and everyone is corrupt and everyone's out to get him and the country's going to hell in a handbasket. Like, you know, someone with a message that was more optimistic, more forward-looking, just different from his message, I think has, you know, would, to your point, would get attention just because it's not Trump. Um, And I think there is a, there is a group of people out there. I mean, I think this is what explains DeSantis being so sought after at this point is there's a lot of Republicans who just are tired of Trump and are, for whatever the next thing is, I think DeSantis has filled that void to some extent, but I think there's still an open debate about what the who the Trump alternative will wind up being. And again, everything about DeSantis right now is just purely potential. Uh, he hasn't gone at most people, I don't think, even those who say they are for him, most people have not seen a Ron DeSantis speech in full, gone out and seen him campaign. Uh, seen him be attacked and see how he responds. You know, I mean, a lot of it is just based on like, well, he he won overwhelmingly in Florida and he's against woke politics. You know, it's like very vague um, ideas about him that are popular within the Republican Party. But like, you know this better than anyone. The, the presidential races, more so than Senate races, even more so than House races, more so than governor's races, Like you have to go out and actually show that you can appeal to people, right? Because these early states are not California. They're not Texas. They're not Ohio, right? They're they're not states where you can just run a bunch of TV ads and introduce yourself to people. You have to like go and meet people. Whenever New Hampshire goes, it will be in the early stages of, of the race. You know, you got, there's an expectation there that you have to go and meet people and campaign and show sort of how you do. Iowa is the same way. South Carolina is the same way. Nevada is harder because geographically the population lives basically in, in uh, Vegas, but there's some in Reno. Like they are, they are grassroots campaigning states, no matter what order they're in. And then the Republican side, you're going to have, they're not trying to change the order. So you're going to have Ohio, New Hampshire, South Carolina. You know, these are states where you have to show and prove it. And, you know, DeSantis hasn't done that. 
Yeah, and, and by many accounts, DeSantis isn't uh, the most naturally winning, personable retail no. politician. You know, he, he, he actually, I think, performs better in large-scale media than if he's just hanging out with you in your hall. He, he doesn't seem to enjoy glad-handing or uh, donor wrangling or any of that stuff. He's sort of imperious. He comes in, he delivers his message, and he walks out. And you know that that's a huge part of, again, I, you can run for Senate in some ways easier in terms of like lacking a winning personality than you can run for president. The presidential race, like it or not, is very personality driven. Uh, you know, just because you look good on paper, if you go out there and you stink or you just kind of don't connect with people, that plays a role. And I think DeSantis has also benefited, by the way, from a slew of positive press. Um, oh, yeah. You know, it's he's, like, he's more or less a media creation. <laughs> I, I mean, he, right? Like he, but at this point, about, like, who like, isn't a media creation? That's true. But I do think he, look, you have not seen, and you will see, right? You will see this, but you have not seen the deep dive into sort of Ron DeSantis's personal life, financial life, uh, stuff he did as governor of Florida that is controversial, stuff he did in the House when he was a member of the House that was controversial, relationship with Donald Trump. Like everything at this point is Ron – if you had to ask someone who likes Ron, they say, well, he fought, he fought critical race theory uh, in Florida schools and he's against woke politics, which is a really good place to be in the Republican Party. It's just there's – there has to be more there. There will be a deeper dive into who Ron DeSantis is. That's why when people say like, oh, he's he's going to beat Trump, like it or not, Trump has already had that deep dive. N nothing seemed to sort of stop him. Remember, I mean, he's he has run for president twice before. Uh, he has there is it is hard for me to imagine a story coming out about Donald Trump between now and the 2024 election where people are like, oh, that's it. Like, no more. I, I can't possibly support him now. You know what I mean? So much has come out about him already. Um, and I think DeSantis has yet to go through that sort of process. I, I think Nikki Haley has. None of the other ones have, right? But none of the other ones have are, are currently sitting in as much of a catbird seat as Ron DeSantis is. You know, he's exactly where you would want to be. He's in the 30s. Uh, he's behind Trump, but sort of has a very favorable opinion uh, among Republican voters. Uh, he's going to be able to raise a bunch of money. He has a base in a state that is a significant electoral powerhouse. So there's a lot going for him. I just think we know the way this process works. Once you get to the point where it looks like you might be the nominee, the scrutiny becomes much, much, much more significant. And not every candidate can can sort of bear that. Uh, and and it, I think it remains to be seen whether he is a candidate who can. And I think to your point, like there are intimations that come out of Florida that he is not warm and fuzzy, that He's he not. is not someone that he is not someone who people on a one to one basis, right? Like he's he's at a coffee shop in Iowa. He's not someone. He's awkward. He's not a right? schmoozer. He's not, some, he's not like right. your conventional like fraternity <laughs> president or any of that jazz. Right. And so, you know. Again, you can argue, well, the process shouldn't be about that. It should be about policy. But like the process, at least as currently constructed, is heavily personality driven because those early states are so sort of grassroots, door to door focused. 
Um, and, I, and I think it, it is an open question how he wears there. Yeah, so, uh, so you have Trump, uh, you have DeSantis, you'll have, let's call it for sake of argument, eight other candidates by the time the voting gets going in the early states. Uh, I agree with you that there's a lot of Trump fatigue um, everywhere. Uh, at the same time, I also agree with you that that might not stop him from becoming the nominee. <laughs> and, the, and the math I look at is that he only got 30 to 35 percent of the primary voters yep. in 2016. And then the other seven candidates uh, split the rest of the vote. That was enough for him to win. A lot of the Republican states have winner-take-all primaries. So if you win by a smidgen, yes. you get all the delegates. Yep. Uh, and I can see that math playing out again. I can see Trump against, let's call it, DeSantis and six other candidates. And maybe DeSantis finishes a close second to him in, in various places. But the, the non-Trump vote will get divvied up. Um, I think that there'd be a better chance of Trump losing if somehow the field were to consolidate or to clear and yep. everyone is just like Trump versus a non-Trump um, candidate. But I, I can't imagine all of the Republicans uh, running, buying into that because they all have their own agendas. And if you remember in 2016, that was kind of the dynamic where everyone was like, oh, I'll be the last one standing against Trump. Totally. So let, me, let, let me shiv the other guys. I still remember. It's so funny you mentioned 2016 because I was going to bring it up when we we're talking about this. I still remember there was a story, uh, there were a bunch of stories, but one I remember in particular, it was like Rick Santorum and Ted Cruz's people are talking. Uh, and uh, the debate is like, can they consolidate behind one candidate? And, and like the quotes are like the Santorum people arguing like, well, we're definitely the stronger candidate. And the Cruz people arguing like, well, we're definitely the stronger candidate. And like the new people arguing, well, we're definitely the stronger, you know? And so that's the problem. It's like, Yes, in if you could if you could objectively look at the 2024 Republican field and your goal was to keep Donald Trump from the nomination, I don't think there is any debate that your best course of action would be to find the candidate who has the best chance of beating him, however you define that, whether it's you know ability to raise money or or capacity on the campaign trail or polling, and everyone the race except for those two people because then you have a direct choice and to your point you know donald trump is not somebody who who wins overwhelmingly right he he wins with 35 36 37 yeah, yeah, totally you know and in a one-on-one -on -one matchup 37 percent isn't enough but in an in a eight-way matchup or a six-way matchup or even a four-way matchup where you know uh winds up getting 15% of the vote in, in New Hampshire or, you know, and keeps DeSantis from, from beating Trump or Mike Pence gets 10 or 12. You know, again, these are not, you don't need Nikki Haley to get 52% of the vote for this to matter. You need her to get anything above about eight to 10 and there to be a couple other candidates. And I think the reality of the, the, the dynamics in the Republican party is that it will inevitably, no matter how the other candidates run, it will inevitably come down to a Trump candidate, Donald Trump, versus a non-Trump set of candidates or candidate. Like he is the prime mover still in Republican Party politics. It's impossible for me to imagine that Donald Trump is like just one of a bunch of candidates. No, he is almost certain to be one of the last two candidates standing because he has 30 percent in Almost every state.
because he's done this before, because he has universal name identification, um, because he still, in my mind, has uh, something close to a stranglehold on sort of the Republican Party base. And so there's no scenario by which Donald Trump, it, I can't imagine the race comes down to Nikki Haley versus Ron DeSantis. It feels to me like the race will ultimately come down to Donald Trump versus someone else. And, you know, if if it goes on long enough, I mean, I remember when the race narrowed to Trump and Cruz in 2016, by the time it did that, it was May and Trump already had too big of a delegate lead. To your point about yeah. winner take all, it's it's like a nerdy thing people don't like to talk about. But, you know, Republicans do have a lot more winner take all states. So if you win by 50 points or you win by 50 votes, you still get all the delegates. So if if through March you still have a four or five or six way field and the field is basically the five non-Trump candidates versus the Trump candidate, you know, Trump is going to accrue a lot of delegates by that point. So by the time there is this consolidation, if there is this consolidation, it may be too late. That was the yeah. case in 2016. Uh, I, I think there's a reasonably high chance that you find Democrats boosting Trump uh, down the stretch because if Joe is the nominee, he has a much better chance against Trump yeah. than he would against, uh, let's say, uh, DeSantis, Absolutely. Um, Nikki Haley uh, combo. Both Nikki Haley and DeSantis are under – Nikki Haley may be over 50 now, but it's close. DeSantis is under 50. I, I think Biden's great weakness in my mind is his age. Um, I, you know, I know the, all the talk about like, oh, he's a liberal or, you know, you can debate all of that stuff policy-wise. But I think the biggest thing that the average person – has an issue with is his age. Like, do I really want someone who, you know, my grandfather is 82. Do I really, what I really want my grandfather as the president of the United States. I think that's a very relatable concern for lots and lots and lots of people. To my mind, the best, again, if you're in an objective vacuum and Donald Trump, you know, you can keep Donald Trump from the nomination. The best approach for Republicans, if winning is the goal, is to nominate someone who is generationally, you know, several generations younger than Joe Biden to say, look, Joe Biden's policies are old. Joe Biden is old. We need a change. We need fresh blood. You know, we need a, a fresh vision. Donald Trump can't really make that argument, right? I mean, it's just he's a couple of years younger than, than Joe Biden. It's not like Donald Trump is a policy visionary. You know, I, I think he is – I think he is simultaneously the most likely Republican nominee and out of the major candidates we've talked about, probably the weakest Republican nominee in that I can see a path that Biden runs and wins again on a very similar message, which is like, let's, this is a return to normalcy. Like, do you want this guy who's out there pushing like crazy conspiracy theories? Or do you want me who you may not love, who you may think is too old, but like, I'm not going to crash the Republic into a mountain. I, I was on a panel with Chris Christie uh, a little while ago. And Chris said, uh, a generic Republican will defeat Joe Biden. And then I said, congratulations, Chris, but a generic Republican can't win your nomination. Nope. <laughs> you know, That's exactly you right. Up. And so you, you wind up. So I, I think that Democrats will be looking at each other saying, like, are we really going to run Joe back? Uh, you know, uh, uh, like and uh, and then be like, well, if it's against Trump, he'll he'll win. And then if it seems like a non-Trump candidate is emerging, then they'll start freaking out. I, I think the the strongest argument and, and I should have mentioned this at the top when I said, you know, six months ago, I think there was more doubt about Biden running both. Did he want to and did the party want him? 
you know, I think one of the, the things that has really helped Joe Biden is the reemergence of Donald Trump presidential candidate. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I really do. Like the idea of Trump is no longer just theoretical, right? He is running. He is running for the nomination. It is virtually impossible to see how he would get out of the race, which, by the way, is a whole separate conversation. But like, I don't see how Donald Trump goes quietly into that good night if he doesn't win the Republican nomination. I mean, I think that, that's another thing Republicans, I think, have to really worry about. But side, that's a side point. I, I do think that the emergence of Trump, Biden can make the argument and, and can and will. Look, I've beaten this guy once. I can beat him again. It's, it's a very similar case to the 2020 campaign, which is competency, normalcy, you know, uh, we want to look up. We want, exactly. We want, we want to look up to our leaders. We don't want to sort of be embarrassed Soul of America. Them. I remember the totally the boss. Totally. And, and so I think the more viable Trump looks, the better Biden looks in a way in that I think it just makes him, uh, it, 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 it strengthens the case to nominate someone with Biden's profile, even at his age, because he's been there and done that before. Oh, when I was running against uh, Joe and everyone else in the 2020 primary, the number one question for Democrats was who can beat Trump? And yeah. I, I think that Joe Biden won the nomination because Democratic voters decided Biden can beat Trump. And I totally. think that you're looking at it now saying Biden can beat Trump and Trump is running. And that if it was Ron DeSantis, all of a sudden it would be like, can Biden defeat DeSantis? And, uh, you know, the answer, uh, I think, would be probably not. And, and then there would be a, a, a giant freak out. There would also be an attempt to cast Ron DeSantis as, uh, you know, just as loony as Trump, um, which some people believe, some don't. I don't know Ron well enough to know, what, you know, what, what the truth is. I think it's a harder sell, I think, because DeSantis, you know, the criticism of DeSantis, honestly, is that he's kind of boring, you know, that there's not, there's not uh, like beyond the sort of like face of it. There's not a lot of there there. Um, I think in the same way that Republicans, you know, Republicans tried to make the argument like Joe Biden is just as destructive for America as Hillary Clinton. Like it, it you, never. You would say, say boring. I, I think the other critique is, uh, cold and non-personable. And that is more dangerous to him. I just think like being called boring is not necessarily, if you're the, if you're the party's nominee is not necessarily the worst thing because I think it's harder to vilify Ron DeSantis than it is Donald Trump. I think Donald Trump gives it to you on a platter in terms of things he says, things he does, things he's said and done in the past. I think DeSantis I mean, there is no question that if DeSantis is the nominee, the argument against him by Democrats will be he is too extreme for America, right? He he wants to make America into Florida. The vast majority of Americans don't want that. That will be the case that is made. Um, I don't know how we'll see again with DeSantis. I think so much of it is we'll see, but we'll see how he wears that label. Again, I think Democrat Republicans tried to brand Joe Biden as an extremist who was going to take America backward rather than forward. He was just Hillary Clinton, but a man, blah, blah, blah. And like, while that extremist kind of, you can't trust them attack worked on Hillary Clinton, it, you know, it didn't, it was kind of like, well, it's just Joe Biden. Like he can argue he's like, been in the Senate, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The character, the caricaturing doesn't really work as well on Joe because uh, most Americans kind of have a sense of Joe and what his deal is. Totally. And so 
I don't know if that would be true, um, but I, look, I do think that um, the best nominee for Democrats is Donald Trump. I, I don't. I just don't see any debate about that. By the way, Joe Biden, always a very winning human being on the trail, uh, charmed me and my wife. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. Jill is great, too. I mean, when, when you talk about the personality of uh, a politician or a president, uh, Joe Biden definitely had that winning. Uh, totally. Uh, yeah, and loves glad-handing. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, genuinely likes people, um, likes interacting with people, li likes expressing uh, comfort or, or sympathy. So it sounds like you and I are aligned that on the Democratic side, most likely nominee is Joe Biden. Um, it, it sounds like both of us think that there's a reasonable chance that Trump emerges as the Republican nominee again. If it's not him, then it, it's um, probably DeSantis, though a lot can change. And DeSantis hasn't been vetted. And, um, and I, I have been through a, a crucible. Like it, it's a weird one where you don't know how a candidate is going to respond to the crucible of being in a presidential race until they're in it. So you just don't know. I mean, you know, there were points when there were, there were all sorts to, of folks who were front runners. <laughs> no, but I think that's really important is like, you know, you, when you announced had some sense, maybe what you thought running for president would be like, but like when it got more serious, when you started to get like people actually responding to you, it's, it's a different thing, right? It's a different thing for sure. And, and, that's a process that you can't know until you do it. I think that's one reason why there are a number of these candidates on the Republican side who haven't taken the plunge. Um, because it's actually, <laughs> you might not know this, and but I've seen other candidates too, same, same drill. So I was campaigning in uh, Iowa, New Hampshire in the earliest days when there were folks who were uh, taking the temperature. Some had declared, some had not declared. We're talking about Eric Swalwell, uh, mm -hmm. Jeff Merkley, Governor Inslee of Washington State, uh, Tim Ryan, um, Kirsten Gillibrand, who declared at a certain point. And, and the fact is, when you're going around saying, hey, I'm running for president, the response is generally not like, oh, that's amazing. Who are you? What's your deal? <laughs> there, 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 you know, there, there's a ton of, uh, of, I don't care who the fuck are you, like ignore you. Um, and that was happening to members of Congress or governors or senators. I, I once gave a talk, a political talk, you know, we, we were like a stump speech, essentially. And it was me and Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado, who mm -hmm. also ran for president in our cycle. I think Senator Bennett is a really great, smart guy. And we were both giving our stump speeches in a bar in, I want to say it was South Carolina, and no one there could give a shit. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, and, and so for, really for, hard. So for Andrew Yang to be like, hey, I'm, and so I just made light of it, and had some fun and just did something and like because at this point, really throughout most of my campaign, like if you didn't give a shit about me or like, you know, treated me like, oh, who the fuck are you? I was just like, it's cool, whatever. You know, it's like I'm, I'm like, <laughs> like, why would you? Da, da, da. But if you're a former governor, your former secretary of, of whatever the heck, if you're a member of Congress, Sitting you senator. go out. Yeah, and then you go around being like, "Hey, I'm da da da," and people are are you know like just uh, blowing you off. There's something really, really. There's something very difficult about saying I'm running for president, and then folks responding to you like you're uh, full of shit. Which, by the way, like 
even like a gajillion of these former officials, they get that. The only times you don't get that is if your name recognition is sky high or you're famous. Um, and there's like a subset of these political figures that have that, but most of them don't. Like if Governor Larry Hogan walked into a random bar in New Hampshire or Iowa or South Carolina, no one would know who he was. By the way, nope. Governor. By the way, Governor Larry Hogan. I think he's a very, very smart, personable guy. Um, uh, but I'm, you know, I'm just saying. Like, I, like I know what what walking in those. No, shoes it's just is a like. reality. It's just, it's just people. Again, like I, I think, I think for all of us, it's like. I announce when my book is coming out and I'm like just waiting for it to go to number one on Amazon. No, like that's not how it works. That's not how politics works. You got to introduce yourself over and over and over again. And anyone who has not seen politics up close, it can be really awkward and uncomfortable to your point. Like people are not people. Most people are not like us. They are not dialed into this stuff every day. They are not like going to a restaurant in hopes of meeting a presidential candidate. Like they're going to a restaurant to eat. And you yeah. just happen to be there. You're, um, you're the random so person, I, yeah, getting there. Totally. Attention. Who's like, you know, like coming up to them while they're like ordering appetizers. And I think that that process is humbling. I think it's uh, daunting. And I think even for someone like DeSantis, who, who I still think there's going to be times when he goes to Iowa, or New Hampshire, South Carolina, where it's not all roses it's not all everyone knows him certainly was the case for nikki haley or mike pompeo or or larry hogan or any of these other people we mentioned like you gotta grind in the beginning well what's interesting though is i think trump uh really ended up leapfrogging a lot of this process by virtue of his celebrity i mean he didn't clap totally. the hand. He, he just sort of did his like giant rallies and was like hey guys never knows who you are and the rest of it what's interesting is desantis has essentially been given a version of the same superpower by virtue of the media and his national notoriety where uh like i, I think he could just show up and do like a one-to-many type rally and then like and then skip town and there'd be some grumbling activists being like hey he didn't come kiss my ring or whatever but like he he might be able to get away with it um the other candidates can't get away with it <laughs> so, so no. they're gonna have to do the thing and, and you know and it's unclear to me whether desantis has been given that that halo um i think he might have um anyway uh, but like the, but before no, but that, i think though, that, that i actually think others. that that's a i think that that's a really interesting question with desantis which they're probably trying to figure out now which is like what kind of campaign does he run right does he run that kind of like uh, Giuliani circa, you know, 2008, where he's running on his celebrity. He kind of comes into town with like, he comes into Waterloo, Iowa with like eight black SUVs. He gives one speech. He leaves Waterloo, Iowa with eight black SUVs and flies privately back to New York City. Like, does he, does he run that kind of campaign, which is like a front runnery camp? You know, I'm already known. I don't, or does he run like a more, Howard Dean in Iowa, you know, nobody knows me, but I'm going to spend all my time there. You know, does he run more of a grassroots campaign? Does he try to run some kind of hybrid where he does, he is trying to, you know, is he going to be the guy who tries to visit every county in Iowa? Or is he going to be the guy who does like, you know, Des Moines, Sioux City, and, 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 and Cedar Rapids? Like, you know, I think that that's an open question because he's like teetering on the edge to your point. Like he's not a celebrity like Trump. He doesn't have universal name ID like Trump, but he's clearly a, a, 
a category above the Nikki Haley's and Mike Pompeo's and Larry Hogan's of the world, right? So like, how do you run if you fit into that category? And I think that's probably what they're trying to figure out. Yeah. Uh, if, if he does have that, I don't have to deal with the, the, um, the activist schmoozing uh, superpower. I think that helps him a lot because I, I, I get the sense that he would not dig it. <laughs> he will. Yeah. <laughs> he, he would, yep. Uh, and, and again, but, and I it, think that that's like a, that's an open question, you know, is like, can, can enough activists undermine him if he doesn't meet them enough? You know, yeah. uh, uh, Trump obviously didn't really do that. I mean, Trump was no. just like, I'm famous. Here's my yeah. plane. Here's a big rally. So I don't know how warm a relationship Trump has with the activist community. But but again, I do think like DeSantis is in a uniquely good position, but a unique position in that he's not clearly not the front runner, but nor is he kind of in the the like really have to go and grind out, you know, every county in Iowa, go to New Hampshire 65 times crowd. So like, what does that look like as a campaign? So you and I agree it could be Biden-Trump, the rematch, or it could be Biden versus someone else. But if it is Biden-Trump, uh, I saw one poll that said 58% of Americans would want an alternative to those two mm-hmm. candidates. To, to our discussion, their combined age in 2024 would be 159. Uh, Joe would be 82 and, and Trump would be 77. Uh, and I think that would be a very, very clear emblem to the dysfunction of our selection process where it's like, wait a minute, you have a country of 300 million people and like we're choosing between this mm-hmm. guy and that guy. And yep. so so 58 percent of Americans would look around being like, do I have an alternative? Uh, no Labels has publicly uh, said that they are gaining ballot access for a potential unity ticket. By the way, that their nightmare uh, or dream, depending upon how you look at it, matchup is – Biden versus Trump, and they say, "Look, if that happens, then we're going to field an alternative." Uh, mm-hmm. Have you heard anything about the the no labels effort beyond what I, has been publicly reported? No, I have not. But I think what they're doing is smart. I think the biggest challenge always for a third party candidate is ballot access, and I think again, it's sort of an unsexy thing. But every state has its own rules on how you get on the ballot. Uh, some states it's quite easy. Some states it's hugely laborious and expensive. Um, you can't just come in, I mean, we sort of saw this with Michael Bloomberg, he obviously ran as a Democrat, but but even if he had run as an independent, just because you come in and spend $500 million, let's say, is a guarantee of very little. Um, you have to be on ballots, you have to have some party infrastructure. I think that's one of the things people overlook. It's like the Democrat, Democratic and Republican Party infrastructures are hugely ingrained in the process and how it works. And so I think in order to, I think ballot access is the first priority. Um, I think you then have to get on the debate stage and and to do that, you have to be relatively well-funded. I mean, look, there's, we're not that far removed from Ross Perot in 1992. And I always remind people, Ross Perot dropped out of the 1992 race, then got back into the 1992 race and still got like 22% or something. There is a path there. I think it's just you have to do the unsexy things now, which is ballot access, which is trying to find a candidate that can qualify for the debates, whether that candidate is a quasi celebrity, whether, you know, however you can qualify the debates, but you have to get on that debate stage. And then you kind of 
see what happens. I do think the best matchup for someone who believes that there needs to be an alternative is Trump Biden without question. Yeah. You end up with a, a, a lane a mile wide. <laughs> like yes. the majority of the country would be yeah. like, Oh, sign me up for this. Well, it's exactly what you, it's exactly what you said. 159. Did you say combined age? I mean, you know, it, it's, and it's a rematch of what we just had. Yeah, and it didn't get better. It got worse. It's like a sequel to And a it's bad only movie. going to get worse. <laughs> I always tell people if you thought 2020 was bad, wait till 2024. Like, there's no indication that the 2024 race is going to be some sort of high minded, either in the primary or the general election, sort of high minded uh, intellectual exercise. It's going to be tr- Trump has, if anything, gotten more. Uh, extremist, more conspiracy driven, more crazy uh, in 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 what he ostensibly believes, and so it, that's not going to change for the better. So I would say that yes, that is without question your your best matchup. Again, though, I think it is it is the logistical things. It is ballot access. It is uh, finding a candidate that you think can make it. To your point, Chris, it's the candidate. If if yeah. you had the the right candidate, then I think uh, it opens up a lot of eyes and minds uh, very quickly. I'm going to share with you what I think is the massive opportunity that we're going to see over the next number of years. The major weakness in the system is the nomination process. And we're talking through it a little bit right now in terms of the 2024 cycle. So if you had uh, an independent primary or a third party primary that people could participate in, uh, you could design it however you want because it's up to you as a party. So you could include New York, California, and Pennsylvania very early on. And right now mm-hmm. they're essentially spectators. You could have people vote on their smartphone and the, their vote gets verified via a personalized QR code that gets sent to their mailing address of record. And then when they scan the QR code, it goes, ding, your vote has been verified. Um, so you could get millions and millions of Americans to participate in a modern process uh, that was choosing between, let's say, just for fun, Mark Cuban, Adam Kinzinger, Justin Amash, Nina Turner, The Rock, like whoever the heck, mm-hmm. you know, like, mm-hmm. like you'd have this set of candidates uh, and then millions of Americans would be like, ooh, I'm, I like this. This is more modern. They're actually asking me. And then the legacy parties would be like, no, no, no. That doesn't matter. That's all fake. What does matter is what the 6% of Iowans decide. And then the average American would be like, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like because, because the legacy nomination processes, we all kind of are like, oh, that's the way it's done. But then if you were presented with something that was much more modern and Different. accessible and, and lowercase mm-hmm. d democratic, then you could, especially now because a lot of the, uh, the control of this process you have the parties with very antiquated uh, uh, nomination processes that, by the way, I participated in. So, you know, I can say it with some authority. And then and then the second thing is you have the media saying, no, like, like this is what matters. This is what matters. And then both of those things are getting less and less uh, credibility over time. Uh, you know, like the, the number of Americans who now say they're independent is like 42 to 50 percent. It's about twice what uh, who say that they're aligned with either party. Uh, trusted media is now cratering to, you know, it's like less than 50 percent. Mm-hmm. Uh, way and less. So it, yeah, way less. It's actually closer to, you know, maybe like like 39 percent or something Jeez. along those lines. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and so 
at some point, by the way, the technology to do what I'm, I'm describing is actually already there. Uh, and you don't even need to use anything newfangled like the blockchain. You can actually just use secure internet voting and then journalists could look at the back end and be like, yeah, they, like they counted Chris Eliza's vote, like the way they, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. or, or, or whatever. Um, the, the big variables are ballot access, which is yep. uh, difficult and expensive and time consuming. Um, no Labels is saying they're, they've already, they're already raising and spending, I think about 35 million on it, which is about what it would cost. Um, and then whether you have some heavyweight candidates that decide to run. Uh, but if you have the heavyweights, by the way, if you had a heavyweight like a Mark Cuban decide to run, then anyone else who was considering running for president would all of a sudden find it much more appealing because they're like, wait a minute, I can run in a process that isn't going to put me through the, the ringer of either the democratic process or the Republican process because you know that those processes – uh, aren't going to give you a fair shake or aren't going to expose you to the average voter. It's just going to expose you to the, the base of either party. I think that's right. Um, I think the question is, can you get all of that up and running in time to have an active candidate field in advance of 2024? I mean, I think that's it's. Oh, it, I'm, it's, I'm talking about over like any of you're talking uh, the, about the next number of cycles. Um, or, or not? Maybe I'd say between this this cycle and decades, because I I, I think that's something like what we're describing. Um, it is. I mean, it could happen in in twenty four, but it could also happen in twenty eight, thirty two, et cetera. I, look, I think that the upheavals that journalism and politics have seen are still not adequately understood. I mean, I, I see that every day with you know. Uh, this doubling down on like broadcast linear television or doubling down on print, you know, I mean, like, I think that the reality of all these organizations is the people who run them are still part of legacy media organizations or legacy political organizations. And that change rarely is going to come from above. I think change is going to come from below. I think that people are ripe for change. I think that they're sending us messages that they're ripe for change. Um, I think the question is, can you get someone in in the politics sphere, can you get someone who encapsulates a desire, that desire for change? You know, Ross Perot was many things, not all of them great, but but he was radically different than what was on offer from the I fondly remember Ross Perot and the giant sucking sound, which turned out to be right, yep. by the way. <laughs> yep. yep. And it's like 30 minute infomercials. You know, he, he looked, sounded and was different than what was being offered by the two parties. Um, I think that in a presidential race, the candidate matters overwhelmingly. Uh, yeah. it, 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 as I said before, it tends to be a vote on personality and likability uh, as opposed to sort of a vote on policy. It, a lot of people think of presidential races like you go to the two candidates' websites or three candidates' websites and you <clears throat> look at the policies and you check off the ones you agree with and you add up the checks and you vote for whichever candidate has more checks. Some people vote like that, but the vast majority of people don't. The vast majority of people are like, uh, I mean, I always point to George W. Bush. George W. Bush won not really because of any policy, but because people were like, yeah, he seems like a pretty good guy. And Biden is the same way. It was like, ah, it's Uncle Joe, you know, like he's, he's, he, sure, he has his limitations, he has his weaknesses, but like he's a fundamentally decent human being. So I think that any third party has to find a candidate who can encapsulate desire for change and credibility. You can't look like a, it can't look like 
a a uh, triple bank shot. It has to look like I could I could imagine this person running the country. I do think that Barr is different now that Donald Trump has been president, right? Like his background was like a reality TV star and sort of successful businessman. So I think there's a lot more people who see themselves as a potential president. I think that's a good thing. Um, I think we would benefit from a more open process. Um, I, again, I, I think in theory, an open process is man is manageable and doable. I think in practice, it's a little bit harder because the two parties are so entrenched and would fight so hard against it. Well, Chris, this has been a, a fascinating and fun conversation and a bit of a trip down memory lane for me. <laughs> um, so uh, you have a book coming out, Power Players, about presidents and sports. And I, I know that this is those are two things that you probably have deep interest in. You want to talk a little bit about your book? Yeah, near and dear to my heart. Um, yes, the book is uh, essentially an attempt to look at the sports presidents played, spectated, and loved, whether when they were kids or when they were adults, and what it tells us about them. So Nixon, for example, Nixon was a very good bowler. He actually bowled a 227. He had bowling lanes wow. installed in the White House. Um, there's all these great quotes from him that have been lost to history that I, I, I found for the book about the solitude of bowling and why that attracted him. And this idea of that bowling was the sport of the silent majority at the time, you know, in the seventies, it was a big deal. It's true. Bowling yeah. was hugely popular. Yes. I mean, it's not like it is now where it's like, you, you, you know, one person was like a bowling league that they do every Tuesday night. Like it was very popular. Bolt professional bowlers were a big deal. And so he sort of equated this idea of the silent majority with his bowling, with, with, sort of his politics. Um, you know, Obama and and uh, basketball, you know, it's, it's very interesting. So he, Obama only met his father twice. Um, on one of the two occasions, his father gave him a basketball, which at the time made very little sense. Like basketball was not a big deal in Africa, uh, where his father was from. Obama had shown himself no real interest in basketball. But, you know, he has talked about and written about uh, this idea of basketball, sort of a cultural touchstone to, to help him understand what it was to be African-American in this in, in the United States or to, or to be of mixed race, to have a, a white mother, white grandparents and, and a black father who he barely knew. Um, so it's a lot of stuff like that. It's Kennedy and golf. Uh, it's Eisenhower and golf. It's uh, LBJ and the fact that Lyndon Johnson, his sport was politics. Like he never showed any interest in any sport ever except as a means to an end. He befriended Richard Russell in the Senate through baseball. Russell, who was like a hugely powerful figure in the Senate uh, from Georgia, was his wife had passed away. He, uh, uh, he, or maybe he had never married. I think he maybe had never married. Uh, he, he, he would go to baseball games by himself. And Johnson, a new senator, realized that he could get in with Russell by pretending that he was really interested in baseball, even though Lyndon Johnson had no interest in baseball at all. Um, and eventually they form a friendship that leads to many of the things that you saw in the center of the Civil Rights Act, uh, Russell seeing Johnson as his protege. Um, so it's stuff like that. I mean, it was, it was, again, they're the two things I am most interested in in life for politics and sports and to sort of combine the two, it was really fun. So yeah, April 18th, uh, it will be out. I will do a bunch of events around it, but yeah, power players, uh, politics, uh, sports, politics, and the American presidency. Well, I need myself a copy. You can follow Chris. I, you will on get so one. <laughs> Thank you. You can follow Chris on social media, 
Uh, and he has a brand new sub stack. And I, I think you get videos for free. Chris Eliza, thank you so much for coming on. Let's have you back after a couple of these characters declare. Yes. <laughs> we, need some, we need some actual candidates beyond Trump. Otherwise, it's too speculative. I'll come back anytime. All right. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Chris. Right. Thanks, Andrew.